He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora. This is part of a series of video documentaries and podcasts on the New Zealand wars, which include the first Taranaki War, the Waikato War, and the Battle for Ruapeka Peka. This is Stories of Wairo, Part 2. You can find all the New Zealand Wars series on rnz.co.nz, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Namahi nui, and thanks to New Zealand On Air. It could have all gone so differently. It was all so avoidable. Yeah, the road to the momentous events in the Wairo Valley in June 1843 had plenty of room for U-turns, chances for those involved to choose another direction. In 1839, the New Zealand Company's first expedition arrived in the waters of Aotearoa, a ship called the Tory, carrying Colonel William Wakefield, who, as we heard in the first episode, was there to buy land and lead the first settlement. The New Zealand company William worked for was an idea dreamed up by his brother, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, a scheme to colonise New Zealand. But as we've said, it could have all played out quite differently. The New Zealand company had wanted its second settlement after Wellington to be down in Canterbury. But Governor William Hobson had refused and they had to settle for land at Whakatū, also now known as the city of Nelson. The New Zealand company might also have delayed given how few plots of land that initially sold back in Britain. It might have heeded Ngāti Toa's insistence that the Wairo had never been sold. The British government might have learnt from its mistakes in India and the Americas and acted sooner to stall a private company with big colonial ambitions. But none of that happened. Instead, after establishing that beachhead in Wellington, the New Zealand Company, in 1841, turned its attention to the top of the South Island. Land was surveyed, shiploads of colonists set sail, and a new settlement began to take shape. But the vision these settlers had been sold back in Britain was a plot of land in town, plus another 60 hectares each for farming. And when we say the vision that had been sold, we actually mean the land that had been sold. Those settlers had been sold all those hectares, even though the New Zealand company didn't actually own them. So, as more colonists arrived in this struggling community, the pressure grew for more land, and one man had the job of finding that land, Captain Arthur Wakefield. Yep, another Wakefield. While Edward was scheming back in London, William was buying up a third of New Zealand and Governor William Hobson was sailing in to sort out the Treaty of Waitangi. Arthur Wakefield had been sailing around the Mediterranean in command of HMS Radamanthus. It was the pinnacle of an esteemed career in the British Navy that included the 1812 war against America and intercepting slave vessels off the African coast. Once he'd boarded a Spanish ship and freed 420 slaves. As far as the Wakefields go... Arthur was kind of the best of a bad bunch, but he's going to play a key role in the events that would unfold at Wairo, events that are now seen as a critical precursor to the New Zealand wars. Or, as some historians see it, the first act, the very start of the New Zealand wars. It would be Arthur Wakefield who would confront renowned Chief Te Rauparaha in a showdown over land. 
But in 1841, he was just making a midlife career change, moving from the Royal Navy to take up a job in the family firm. Here's Philip Temple, author of the book A Sort of Conscience, The Wakefields. He had this uh, amazing position as the flower of the field because he was a very pious guy, uh, you know, a very religious-focused guy, but he was a magnificent sailor as well and seaman and officer. Uh, So he was highly regarded by everybody in the family. Arthur finishes his last commission and is now available. And I think he was in his early 40s by this stage. So Edward Gibbons says to him, right, you can re-lead the second one. That's the second settlement. He steps into the role of principal agent of the New Zealand company in Nelson. Now, here's historian Vincent O'Malley. And in that role, he is really one of the prime targets for the settler agitation um, demanding access to the lands that they had purchased from the company. So he's he's sort of in the gun in terms of the um, the need to find the, the, the lands that settlers had been promised. More land is needed. So Arthur sends out surveyors, led by Chief Surveyor Frederick Tuckett. The work's hard, physically taxing. They have to cut through scrub, wade through swampland, and it could take weeks, even months. The surveyors head out to Golden Bay, Motueka and Wakapuaka in the Tasman Marlborough area. Here's Philip Temple. They were literally branching out from where they were to see what there was. So uh, Cottrell found, uh, you know, went over the hills and saw the Wairau Plains. Oh, ideal. In December 1842, surveyor John Cottrell comes across 250,000 acres of fertile land. It's just what the New Zealand company needed. And what was even more awesome is that Arthur's brother William told him he'd already bought that land. So the settlers started making plans to occupy it. Arthur was in this difficult situation where he couldn't provide employment. There were too many labourers and not enough capitalists, if you like, and um, not enough decent land to um, set up the kind of settlement that was planned. He believed William, who said, look, we bought that. You know, it's part of the purchase, so don't worry. Which purchase? Yep, you've got it. The Blinkensop purchase, that dodgy deed where Captain Blinkensop pulled a fast one, saying he was renting water and wood, but in writing said he had bought the land outright. William Wakefield has got his hands on that deed and reckons it's his trump card. But Ngāti Toa, and especially Te Rauparaha, knew that it never agreed to sell and knew the Blinkensop deed was a joke. Meanwhile, Te Rauparaha is getting seriously worried about these plans for expansion. Here's Lloyd Carpenter. Tiraparaha is aware of what's going on. The New Zealand company were very proud of what they were doing. Every time they did something, they published it in the newspaper. So what would happen is they'd publish, for example, that there'd been surveyors in the Wairau, explorers in the Wairau, in the newspaper. That would then reach the hands of Tiraparaha, and he knew what was happening. He knew that there was this creeping uh, engagement with the Wairau. So, Te Rauparaha went to see William Spain, the land commissioner put in place by William Hobson after the signing of the treaty to review all the private land sales which had been going on beforehand. 
including the deals the Wakefields thought gave them ownership over the Wairau Plains. But Te Rauparaha's having none of it. He repeatedly tells Spain the Wairau was never sold and never will be. Spain is busy investigating deals around Wellington, but promises he'll get to the Wairau dispute next. Te Rauparaha agrees to wait, but with his half-brother Nohorua and his nephew Te Rangihaiata, he heads to Nelson early in 1843 to tell the New Zealand company to back off. It's described as a substantial ope go over to Whakatū and actually turn up to the offices of the New Zealand company and meet Arthur Wakefield, meet Magistrate Thompson and actually issue warnings that the Wairau is not available until Spain has made its determination. Now, Arthur Wakefield by then has been schooled on some aspects of tikanga. Sends, wants to send away this senior rangatira with a gift. So he brings out a, a, a shotgun, beautiful new shotgun, which he gifts to Tarapraha, who accepts it. Goes to give a similar gift to Tarangi Hayata, who you have to remember has refused to wear European clothing, refuses to engage with European technology where he can, and he says, no, I will not accept this gift because, by, quote, by and by you will say with thus, I have purchased the wairau. So Te Rauparaha figures he's made his position crystal clear to Arthur Wakefield. But as Philip Temple explains, Arthur doesn't seem to have got the message. But Arthur didn't take them seriously and thought that they were just putting on a, a bit of a performance. After leaving Nelson, Te Rauparaha doesn't just sit on his hands, though. To show the wairau is his, he starts to work the land. Here's senior lecturer Lloyd Carpenter again. So they plant gardens up the wairau, re-establish kainga, and what they're doing there is showing this is not just our land, but we're working our land. About 120 Ngāti Toa are there in the wairau. Here's Ngāti Toa leader Kahuropata. You know, we still have very much have a huge interest in this land, and um, I think that they didn't, if they wanted to go to fight, they would have taken an army. Uh, but he took his wives and they took some of their children, we know this, and a few armed uh, soldiers. But other than that, that's the ultimate expression of Māori coming in peace when you take your wives and your children uh, and you're going under a truce of rongo and not under the battle battle flag of Tumatoing, I suppose. So we know this, and that while they were down there, it escalated. It escalated because the first thing Ngāti Toa saw when they arrived was a bunch of New Zealand company employees surveying the land, building camps, laying out survey pegs, clearly still planning to occupy the land in spite of Te Rauparaha's warning. Ngāti Toa needed to send a message that this was unacceptable. They go to the different camps and they turn up and they pull up the survey pegs, burn down the Raupo huts, but then they are absolutely clear that no one is to be harmed and no goods are to be lost. So they carry all of the surveying equipment carefully, because, you know, it's surveying equipment, back to Port Underwood, load them back on, this, on the New Zealand company ship, 
and then head back to um, the second encampment and do the same. So they're really, really clear. You are in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, but we don't want wrong to come to you. But the settlers back in Nelson did not get that message. Yeah, and we've got to remember the context. They've sailed from the other side of the world to a place they'd been promised was literally like a new Garden of Eden. But then at every step, they'd been frustrated. They were angry. They were angry at the governor for refusing to let them settle in Canterbury and seemingly been more interested in protecting Māori interests than the well-being of British citizens. They were angry at the New Zealand company for its broken promises to provide land and jobs. And now they were angry at Ngāti Toa for refusing to grant them access to land they believed rightfully belonged to them. Nelson was a powder keg, just waiting for a spark. So when John Cottrell and his surveyors returned with news of what happened at Wairo, the Nelson colonists were ropeable. They demanded Nelson's police magistrate and, ironically, protector of Aborigines, Henry Thompson, arrest Te Rauparaha and Te Rangihaiata for arson. Here's senior lecturer Lloyd Carpenter again. Those groups turn up back to Whakatū and the Whakatū newspaper... Um, Magistrate Thompson immediately have their cause. They have their just war cause. On June 12th, 1843, Thompson issued the warrant. As Arthur wrote in a letter to his brother William Wakefield... Thompson, accompanied by myself and a lot of constables, are off immediately in the government brig to execute it. We shall muster about 60, so I think we shall overcome these travelling bullies. Although Arthur did have some concerns about Thompson, the 28-year-old police magistrate was infamously hot-headed. As Arthur wrote... I fear Thompson will get a hornet's nest about his ears from his instability of temper and continual interference in trifles. The captain of the government brig, Captain J.H. Wilson, also had some reservations. Arthur insisted the chiefs would not resist arrest and that Tirangi Hayata was only a bully, that there was nothing in him. Captain Wilson thought that was a bit optimistic and decided to stay on board the ship while a posse of 49 settlers, 35 of them armed with weapons, set off to arrest the Ngāti Toa chiefs. Here's Dr Vincent O'Malley again. And many of them are labourers who have no idea where they're going, what they've been asked to do. So there's a group of 49 of them. They're not actually sworn in as special constables, contrary to what's said sometimes, so they have no legal authority, um, really. They're not acting on behalf of the Crown in that sense. Early in the morning of the, the 17th of June, they sailed up the Wairau River. Um, they dropped their canoes off at the junction of the Tumarina stream and, and walk up the rest, and, and that's where they encounter Ngāti Toa. Te Rauparaha sees the ship arriving, and at first he assumes it's William Spain who's turned up to sort out this whole mess. But then he receives word from his nephew, Rawari Puaha, who tells him that in fact it's a group of armed men come to arrest him and Te Rangi Hayata. 
Puaha had tried to talk them out of it, but had been ignored. Te Rauparaha watches as the Pākehā approach. He and his people are mostly hidden by dense bush, while Arthur Wakefield and his party were exposed on the opposite bank of the Tuamarino stream. So they arrive um, at the site where Ngāti Toa are camped on one side of the Tumarina stream on the 17th of June. Each group starts shouting at each other across the stream. Thompson says he's there to make the arrest. Te Rauparaha replies saying, I will not go. I will stay where I am. Then... A... A walker is placed across the stream for Thompson and Wakefield and a, and a small party of men to cross over to speak with them, while others remain behind uh, on, on the other bank with their firearms at the ready. Here's Lloyd Carpenter. Now, it's pretty clear when they are cro- facing across the Duomarino stream and they see amongst the trees, barrels, diaha and then in the little bit of a clearing, these two incredible rangatira. It's no wonder you heard voices amongst the English settlers of, be wary, what are you about? Be cautious. And the surveyors again saying, let's go home now. And my ancestor, the chap Walker, who's clearly looking, possibly holding a non-functioning gun, thinking, this is going to end badly. As an elderly man, Te Rauparaha has lived for the best part of 20 years alongside Pākehā. He's observed European ways and practices, including a common gesture of goodwill. You shake hands, we come in peace. So he extends his hand to Thompson, who he's, he's already met Thompson. Thompson slaps his hand out of the way. Now, I can only imagine what the Ngāti Toa warriors, the other rangatira, would, there'd be this collective intake of breath. There's only one punishment for, for effectively humiliating a rangatira, and that's death. Thompson again says he's there to arrest Te Rauparaha and Te Rangihaiata. And at one point, he pulls out of his back pocket the old manacles and says, I am here to put you in chains. Now, again, this huge provocation. Te Rauparaha says, you will not put those on me. Let's settle it now. Now, the next step he says... I will let, let's determine now what was lost by the surveyors. If we determine it and I agree, I will pay compensation. Right there. So he's again pulling back from the conflict. He's pulled out handcuffs. Tarapraha pulls back. He's like, let's settle it. Tarapraha would later tell British authorities. When I found out what he wanted, I snatched my hand away from his. He got very angry and said, if I did not come, he would fire on us. I said, don't be foolish. We don't want to fight. He again invokes the name of Commissioner Spain. We will wait on the determinations of Spain. And Thompson, by then, he's on this one track. I'm going to put manacles on this little man 
and I'm going to drag him off and I'm going to drag him back. And Tarapara said, this is not going to happen. I'm putting words in his mouth. But that's effectively what he says. But Thompson insists. Remember, this 28-year-old's meant to be a bit of a hothead. He's going to make this arrest for arson no matter what. Again, Teroparaha is incredulous. As he later said to Commissioner Spain, I burnt nothing of theirs. It was my own, the grass and wood that grew on my land. No good defender. And then, amongst all this, there's the booming voice and presence of Tarangi Haida steps forward. Here's Vincent O'Malley. Tirangi Hayata emerges and he's, he's quite angry about what he's witnessed and he, he says that he hadn't gone to England to, to steal the land there, why were they coming to his place to take his lands from him? And again makes clear that under no circumstances is he going to be arrested. Tensions are at boiling point, yet amongst this, another of Te Rauparaha's nephews steps up. Rawiri Puaha, urging for the matter to be settled without violence. Puaha's the son of Te Rauparaha's half-brother, Nohorua, and is a devout Christian. He is Lloyd Carpenter. And he's waving his Bible because he's determined. He can see, as soon as you pull out a couple of sets of manacles, one for Te Rauparaha, one for Te Rangihaita, he sees this as a game-changer. And he starts quoting from the Bible about blessed other peacemakers. He's literally yelling when these other voices are escalating and Thompson turns in the most horrible voice and tells Rawiri Puaha to be silent. Te Rangihaita is furious at Thompson for trying to handcuff Te Rauparaha. He confronts Thompson and says, Who are you? to put ties on Rangi Hayata. Who are you to arrest me on my land? Do you see me going over to your lands to arrest your queen? I am the same as Wikitoria. What he means is I'm a rangatira. She is the rangatira of England. I am rangatira of this land. Now, to a Anglophile, an upright Englishman like Thompson, This is throwing petrol onto every spark. He absolutely erupts in rage at this. And it's at that point things spiral out of control. And then you hear the ringing voice of Arthur Wakefield, who by then seems to have bought into the same passion as Thompson. And he says, Englishman, forward! And at some point, someone shot. There are several who say that that shot was the one that killed Dorongo. It was a tragic end to, um, you know, a, a life that was possibly no more important than any other life at that time. But you can't help but think you know, how ironic it is that she, you know, that she find, found herself at the centre of um, an episode in our history 
that has shaped and influenced the direction our entire country has taken in many ways. That's media pōmare, a mokopuna of Te Rongo. It's written Te Rongo had been preparing a meal near a fire. At the sound of the gun, Ngāti Tua men emerged from the nearby bush. So from then on, the firing starts. But this rabble of road workers are no match for Ngāti Tōa. The Māori are better positioned with the cover of the bush, they're better armed and vastly more experienced. Here's Lloyd Carpenter. The Christian Māori missionaries who are amongst there facilitate the escape of probably half the group, probably more, and start saying, run. And they they probably threw their muskets away and in their best hobnail boots, sprint. And if you know the area from Tuamarino right round to Port Underwood is a long way to run, but they did it. Then they took to their heels. But not everyone is so lucky. People fall on both sides. On the settler side, people fall wounded or killed. On the Māori side, at least four, probably six are immediately fatally shot. But it's the settlers who are coming off worst. And at that point, it's obvious they're up against superior firepower, superior fighting ability, superior musketry, and the only way to survive is to surrender and somehow come to terms. Here's Vincent O'Malley again. The European party scramble back to, to the other side of the Tumarina stream and up up the, the steep hill there, trying to sort of flee from the see, flee from the scene once it becomes clear that they're, they're overwhelmed. After a while, they make their submission, and Arthur Wakefield, Henry Thompson, and a group of others uh, are taken prisoner. And then there's a debate, really, about their fate. Te Panaha and Te Rangihaita hold the lives of these prisoners in their hands, and they're at odds. Te Rangihaita's wife, Te Rungo, is dead, as well as at least three other Māori. Te Rangihaita wants utu. And Te Rangihaita wasn't just angry about the deaths on that day. Remember, there was also the death of Rangihua Kuika and her baby six months earlier and that was still weighing heavily on his mind. Here's Vincent O'Malley. Tadopaha really knows that he can't stand in his way because Tadopaha has Tikanga on his side. In the wide view of things, you know, Ngāti Toa are camped there on their own lands when this posse turns up, attacks him. Tadopaha realises that he he's in no position to, to, to prevent that. And so... The men uh, are executed, nine of them, one by one, uh, with a mere. A mere is a greenstone handheld weapon, just in case you're not familiar. Nine prisoners, including Thompson and Wakefield, lie dead. Te Rangihaiata later told Reverend Samuel Ironside 
that he wanted to kill the prisoners, in part because the murder of Kuika had not been punished. A piece of damper bread was placed under Arthur Wakefield's head. Kahuropata explains why. It's an old custom of defiling uh, the mana or the tapu of a chief by placing food in or around the head area, which was considered absolute sacred or tapu to those chiefs of that time. Uh, so that's a gesture, I suppose, of Nati Tor telling everyone, and, and uh, it holds a little bit of history in terms of that event, that they saw that person as being the person responsible for the whole, the whole situation and how it escalated. Here's media Pomare of Ngāti Mutunga. I understand that there has been a lot of debate and controversy over the years, and, and certainly at the time uh, there was outrage uh, by Pākehā settlers in Nelson and in Wellington uh, at the way in which those prisoners were, in their view, and understandably so, uh, brutally murdered. Uh, but there is a tikanga Māori context, I think, which is very important to understand. And certainly uh, Rawari Puaha, you know, who, a Ngāti Tor chief who had by then converted to Christianity, was adamantly opposed to the killing of the prisoners and, and Te Rauparaha himself uh, tried to stop Te Rangi Haita, uh, recognising that the ramifications uh, would be were completely and utterly uh, destructive for Ngāti Tor. Uh, but tikanga prevailed. And there was a recognition, I think, in that case, that the prerogative uh, was Te Rangi Haitas to determine the fate of those prisoners in accordance with Tikanga Māori. And that's what he did. Here's historian Vincent O'Malley. Of the party of 49, 27 survived. They make their way back to, to Nelson about 10 days later. Ironside... Um, comes across the, the grisly scene afterwards and, and buries the bodies of the, of the Europeans. There's um, huge anger and there are demands for retribution. Vincent O'Malley's not wrong about the outcry amongst Europeans. In Old Marlborough, which is a history of the province published in 1900, author T. Lindsay Buick wrote this. It would be difficult to describe the intense excitement which agitated the whole colony as the tidings of the massacre flew from settlement to settlement. And in the white heat of their anger, the settlers were guilty of saying and doing many rash and intemperate things. Few of them had made themselves conversant with the whole facts of the case, and fewer still stayed to reason out the natural actions of men under the circumstances. All that they knew, and all that they cared to know, was that their countrymen had been, as a Nelson settler forcibly expressed it, brutally butchered. In Nelson, settlers were rallying. Some sworn in as special constables. They fortified buildings. At Wellington, 400 volunteers gathered at Thorndon, erecting artillery batteries. Panic and preparedness swept through the Cook Strait region. Meanwhile, Te Rauparaha heads back north across the Cook Strait. What happened at Wairo weighs heavily on his mind. Here's Lloyd Carpenter. 
He retires to his pa, and I think, I think he looks at this as he's he knows he's in the sunset of his life, and there must have been regret. And he's reflecting on how much he did to preserve this crown of his possessions, and how it's ended so badly. Darangi Hayata is he's at war with himself. He's furious that it's got to this. And he goes off and he starts building fortifications. He starts building, because as far as he's concerned, there are going to be armed, further armed conflicts from this, because of this, possibly as Utu against this. But Pākehā had a range of views in the aftermath of Wairo. Some wanted to fight, some were terrified of further reprisals, and some saw those killed as simply doing their jobs and forcing the law, while others argued the blame for what happened at Wairo lay squarely with the New Zealand company. Yeah, one letter to the Daily Southern Cross newspaper captures that mood, saying the New Zealand company was trying to spin the story to make it sound like they were the innocent victims. It said the company's version of events was... Calculated to divert the public mind from contemplation of conduct so disgraceful to men calling themselves civilised. More especially as that conduct has endangered the necks of all engaged in it, ruined the affairs of the company and degraded the British character in the eyes of the natives, both as a brave and just people. At the end of 1843, a new governor, Robert Fitzroy, arrived in Wellington. He was an officer of the Royal Navy, described as well-mannered and honourable. On the 12th of February, 1844, seven months after what happened at Wairo, and after an investigation by officials, he tried to put the matter to rest. Here's historian Vincent O'Malley, author of The New Zealand Wars, Ngā Pakanga o Aotearoa. He declares that the New Zealand Company and the settlers were responsible for what had happened at Wairo in June 1843, that um, he says that the killing of the prisoners was unfortunate, but under the circumstances... Their passions were up, they were angry about what had taken place, so he could forgive them for that. That was quite a bold response in the circumstances. There's enormous anger at at, um, Fitzroy's response. Um, The settlers feel that that he has abandoned them. They feel that he he is condoning what they saw as a massacre, and there are calls for, for Fitzroy to be replaced and for a new governor to arrive and so on. And so there's uproar really about this. And later on, when, when Fitzroy does eventually depart as, as governor, um, settlers burn effigies of him in celebration. But while Fitzroy's decision not to lay blame on Ngāti Tua may have averted a war, it cost him his job. When news of the killings made it back to Britain, the number of people wanting to migrate to Aotearoa dried up. That was devastating for business for the New Zealand company and for the Wakefield family. Here's Philip Temple. Arthur's death and the other settlers, the New Zealand Company in London went bonkers. Uh, I mean, William Wakefield at one point wanted to start fighting himself because he, he was so devastated by his brother's death. And they really went for the uh, for Fitzroy in Parliament and so on. And he was recalled and then Gray was sent out. That's George Gray, by the way, a.k.a. Kawana Cray, the governor who would lead Aotearoa through much of the 1850s and 60s. 
and Gray takes a, di- a completely different attitude towards Wido. And he says Nati Toa were to blame for that. He demands that they pay Utu for, for this. A- and what he asks for is that they hand over the Wido as payment for the Europeans who are killed. Not only does Gray reverse Fitzroy's take on what happened at Wido, there are further disputes over the rights to the land. Much of what happened in Nelson was repeated in Wellington. Colonists arrived to find land they had paid for and sailed all the way around the world to occupy didn't actually belong to them. And as the struggle over land was taking place, Governor Gray decided to eliminate Te Rauparaha, who he saw as a threat to his authority in the region. Here's Lloyd Carpenter. They're sent in and he's arrested Um, with a group of soldiers going in and arresting him in his hut. No charge, no warrant, and he's held in in Auckland for 18 months. While Te Rauparaha was in captivity, Te Rangihaiata would fight Grey and his allies for control of lands in the Hutt Valley. But ultimately, he and his people would be forced to retreat north of Wellington. Here's Kahuropata. They went to uh, Waikanae, and I think Kawana Kray even made his way to Waikanae. But at the end of the day, he pursued, didn't pursue Ngāti Toi any further, because I think the objective for him was as long as Tarangi Hayata was out of Wellington and he could carry on with those, um, with what he was doing in Wellington, which was, I suppose, the continued undermining of Ngāti Toi's supremacy in order to establish the cities of Wellington, Nelson and Blenheim. Tensions over land throughout the Cook Strait region would remain high. Eventually they would explode into the Hutt War, a conflict which Te Rangihaiata would play a central role in. In the year after what's known as the Hutt War, in 1847, Governor Gray made a deal to purchase the Wairo from Ngāti Tōa. No Marlborough student should leave school without knowing about the, the affray or the massacre that went on here. So does, do people kind of know what happened to this place? You remember Dr Peter Mehana from episode one? Well, he's a senior lecturer in Māori history at Mercy University and he uri no rangitane no ngāti koata me ngāti kuia. He explained the purchase like this to a group of school kids on a field trip to Wairau. Right, I want to buy your land in the Wairau. And so they sold the land here in the Wairau. Governor Gray's intention when he kidnapped Te Rauparaha was to weaken Ngāti Tōa, to give him an opportunity to win the land once and for all, including the land at Wairo. These sales, by the way, ignored the rights of Rangitane, the people who had lived in the Wairo for hundreds of years before Ngāti Tōa arrived and who still lived in that region when the land was sold. Gray and his officials simply said that Rangitane had been conquered by Ngāti Tua and therefore had no real rights to the land. Later, the Crown set up so-called reserves on the Wairo Plain for three iwi in the area to live on. It was just 770 acres out of 26,000. 
The rest of the land was sold to Pākehā farmers. Most of what Māori retained was swampy and not that great for living on. And it could all come back to this event here in 1843. Yep. So, just... Like, I know it sounds complicated. Did I make it complicated? No, or just no. it? So they kidnapped the chief from Ngāti Tawa who signed the treaty and held him hostage to get him out of their land. Yep. Gray goes on to have a long and eventful career. He governed Aotearoa through most of the rest of the New Zealand wars and then had a career in Parliament. The stress of these conflicts might have driven William Wakefield to an early grave. He died of a stroke in 1848, just 47 years old. The New Zealand company didn't outlive him by long. It collapsed under its debts and ceased operating in 1850, before finally dissolving eight years later. Although its founder, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, went on to have a short but busy career in New Zealand politics after migrating to Aotearoa in 1853. Te Rauparaha's health declined after his kidnapping by Governor Gray. In 1849, Te Rauparaha died, but he would never be forgotten. Least of all, his famous haka. Here's Kahuropata. Kamate, kamate, kaura, kaura. You know, it's death, it's death, it's life, it's life. It tells us that in those days, that's, that's what it was. It was life and death situations. And the wrong decisions could have a horrible effect on your hapu, your whanau and your tribe. And the next generation survived to be able to tell the true story. What of the land today? Well, a 2010 Waitangi settlement established the mana whenua, or people of the land in Wairo, are not Ngāti Toa. Instead, the mana whenua in the region are now acknowledged as Rangitane or Wairo, one of the iwi Ngāti Toa defeated in the 1830s. The Crown apologised for ignoring Rangitane in the aftermath of the Wairo incident and paid $25 million in land and cash by way of compensation. Today, many remember Wairo as a side note to the New Zealand walls, a relatively small incident compared to the scale of what was to come. Yeah, and these other wars are all covered in other episodes of the New Zealand Wars series. For example, what happened at Wairo helped spark similar tensions in Taranaki. And you can hear all about that in New Zealand Wars, Stories of Waitara. So Wairo was a kind of trigger for all sorts of other events, but it also had huge significance in and of itself for those who lived through it. Yeah, as Peter Mehana points out, people who lived in the area used to measure time based on whether an event happened before or after the Wairo incident. 1843 is like the BC AD of the area. Like they'll say... Uh, such and such, who was a child at the time of the affray, oh. or such and such, who was born five years after the affray. All right, uh, are you, you guys ready for some uh, kai? Yes. yes. Keep, keep off the road, keep off the road. about half an hour. 30 minute lunch break. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah. 
Tinatato and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for others to find this and other awesome podcasts on the RNZ website. This series also includes New Zealand Wars, stories of Waitara, stories of Tainui, and stories of Rua Pika Pika. Ida, and the video series is amazing. Lloyd Carpenter, Vincent O'Malley, Media Pomare, Kahuropata, and Sumachu Terei were interviewed by Mihi Narangi Forbes. Na mihi kia koutou. Also thanks to David Green, Matthew Baker, Philip Temple, Peter Mehana, and Liana MacDonald for helping us out with the research for this podcast. Na mihi mai o hakinga kai kōrero voice talent from Kehu Butler, Ngairo Eriwera, Duncan Smith, Grant Walker, Simon Dickinson and Tim Watkin. New Zealand Wars The Stories of Wairo is a co-production by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television. This podcast episode is written and produced by me, Justine Murray. And by me, William Ray, and by our executive producer, Tim Watkin. Sound engineers, Phil Benj and William Saunders. The series was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. E re re nga taimihi, kia koutou katoa.